0: you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast for more sermons and content visit sojournmontrose.org. dot uh, org so before we jump into uh, the sermon this morning, as we read the text you 're probably already starting to feel a little antsy knowing what the topic is but but just a, a warning to to parents in the room who might have small children um, we are going to be talking about uh, sexuality and, and sexual immorality, and so if there is language in that subject that you maybe feel is not best for your child, this is your time to, to make that decision. Uh, but, I, but I wanted to give warning before jumping in. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been going through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And really recently, we've been in a a smaller series within the series in 1 Corinthians that we're calling the pure church, in which Paul is kind of over and over and over again calling the Corinthian church to be pure and to be holy. Uh, Last week, we saw that manifesting in the first part of chapter 6, when Paul is calling the church of Jesus in Corinth to remember their identity in Christ in regards to their relationships with others. And then this morning, we're going to be seeing how call is, Paul is calling the church to walk in holiness and purity in regards to sexuality. And really, in between those two texts, there's a chunk in verses nine through 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter six, where, where Paul kind of reaches this climax of talking about purity and holiness in which he warns the church that, that those who are within the church who are calling themselves Christians but consistently walk outside of the things God has called them to should be concerned. And he says that it's these people that, that fail to inherit God's kingdom. And so it's from that place that we find ourselves with Paul talking to the Corinthians about sexual sin and and, and sexual purity. Hear what Paul says in regards to those things in verses 12 and 13. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so the cultural and historic context into which Paul is writing is he's writing to a church in the city of Corinth that, that had a culture of normalizing any sort of sexual indulgence. The the Corinthian culture of the city was was if you have a hunger, then find something to eat. If you're thirsty, get something to drink. And if you have sexual desires, find a way to fulfill them. Hire a prostitute. Do whatever it takes, but, but a desire is not to be unmet in the city of Corinth. And so what the Christians in Corinth were doing was they were consistently behaving more like the Corinthians around them than like their Savior, Jesus Christ, in regards to sexuality. And they were taking the newfound grace and liberty that they had in this gospel of forgiveness and arrogantly claiming that there was really nothing that was outside of the realm of what they were allowed to participate in. Like, if we have freedom in Christ, then we can really indulge in whatever desire we have. And here Paul begins to warn them. He's warning them that their arrogance is leading them to destruction. And the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord. And I think this t- text is particularly helpful for us. Because much like the Corinthian culture, we live in a culture, in a, in a city, and really in the western world at large, that has normalized all sorts of sexual immorality. And, and while the American church is historically the first group of people to stand up and speak out against things that we would call sexually immoral, whether it's homosexuality or the dangers of pornography or any of these other things, the numbers would show that secretly and quietly we indulge in these things just like the rest of the world around us. I would venture to guess that many of us sitting in this room have behaved in regards to sexuality much more like Houstonians than like we should as Christians. A 2014 study revealed that 67% of US men between like the ages of 18 and 40 had watched pornography within the last month. That's two thirds. 28% of women of the same age group had done so at least three times in the last year. And the numbers for Christians weren't really different. They just weren't very different. There was not a great statistical variance in the numbers for Christians and non-Christians in regards to these things. And so, secretly and privately, in, in our bedrooms and in our offices and, and in these things, we continue to indulge in these sexual appetites, even though we probably know or feel like that's wrong if we're a Christian. And I'm not just talking about the church outside of this theater, I'm talking about us, I'm talking about me. The reality is is that over the last 10 years of my life, there's been an ongoing battle against these desires that that by the grace of God I have much more freedom in and much more purity than I did 2 years ago or 5 years ago or 10 years ago. But the reality is is that this sermon is not just for you, it's for me also. Yet some of us in the room are, are, are not Christians or at least we have rejected the Christian sex ethic. We've thought that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is outdated and repressive and intolerant. Yet many of us in the room would read what the Bible says about sexuality and say that is right and that is good, but walk in, in a behavioral dissonance where we do the very things that we think are evil. And so really whether you're in the mires of a sexual addiction this morning or have a checkered past that you feel shame about or you view the Christian worldview in regards to sex as archaic and unhelpful, what I'm going to invite us to do is to really see what the Bible says about sexuality because we might find out it's not what we thought and, and to lean in. And to do that, what we have to do first is to to see what the Bible actually calls sexual immorality. What is it that the Bible actually says in regards to sexual behavior? What is considered good and what is considered bad? And quickly and simply put, sex was created by God for the people of God to enjoy within the context of a marriage between man and woman. And many of you, because of this definition, have long thought that the Christian worldview in regards to sex was, was a low view of sex. If, if sex is only to be enjoyed within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, and there's really no other place in which it's to be enjoyed, then Christians must have a really low view of sex. They must not understand how powerful it is. They must not understand how enjoyable it is. They must not understand how deeply wonderful it is. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, I would wager that Christians and in the Christian Bible have maybe the highest view of sex in all of human history. See, within the context of the Christian worldview within the context of what the Bible says about sex, it exists for the joy and union of married people. It exists for worship of God and for physical and spiritual union between lifelong partners. It exists to seal and to consummate a covenant relationship. So for those of us who are tempted to reject that the Christian worldview in regards to sex, I would invite you to reconsider. That the Christian does not have too low a view of sex. In fact, the Christian Bible has such a high view of sex that many of us in the room, if not all of us, probably in some way or another underestimate the power and purpose of sex. And that is where we find ourselves in a problem. We underestimate the power and purpose of sex, and this is what Paul says in verses 13 through 18. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul says that sexual sin is misuse of the body. He tells us this, that because in sex we are united to others in a very powerful way. Paul is addressing primarily the Corinthians soliciting prostitutes, and he And he asks them, do do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he quotes the account of the first marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he says the two will become one flesh. This is really powerful language, church. See, what Paul is meaning is that in sexual relationship, we confirm and strengthen a covenantal bond to one another. And so in in sex, two people move from being individuals to being one united body, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And so within the context of marriage, this is a grace. As a husband and wife are called and able to revisit and reestablish their union to one another through the physical act of sex. In this, they they confirm that their vows to one another are to be family, to submit to each other in all things, to be vulnerable and connected in worship and in Christian living. And their bodies being united serves the purpose of tying them deeply together. Yet when we use sex outside of these bounds, what we end up doing is writing checks that we aren't willing or able to cash because we become emotionally and spiritually and physically united to people that we're not ready to commit to. This is why breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend becomes exponentially more difficult after sex has entered into the relationship. This is why addictions develop to pornography and masturbation. Because in these things we're continually telling our bodies, our brains, our hearts, our eyes, and our spirits that the objects of our lust and sexual desire are actually things that we are deeply committed to, even married to. Yet we live a life seeking independence from these things. And it's destructive because we've underestimated the power and purpose of sex. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. This is the call of the text from the Apostle Paul. He's writing in a plea to a church that he knows is getting owned by their desires. He's hearing about what the Corinthians are participating in from hundreds of miles away. And I just imagine him sitting and writing this letter to the church, not only furious but deeply sad that the church is giving themselves over to these things that are leading to their death. They lived in this city that believed the wise thing to do was to gratify any and every desire and And Paul's response is emotive and clear. When we read verse 18, we often read it like this. Flee from sexual immorality. But Paul wrote it more like this. Flee from sexual immorality. It's going to kill you. Run! You don't understand what you're doing. Don't you know the commitment you're making in these things? Don't you know how you're going to be bonded so deeply to these things that you desire? These things that you think are momentary and small? Don't you know that it's going to take decades to get over this? Flee from it. And so sojourners, look at the lust in your heart. Look at your browser history. Look at your relationships. Look at any other thing that you may have caught yourself up in in misusing your body and the gift of sex and run. Run as fast as you can away from it. Yet many of you are in the room and you're like me. And you hear this biblical standard for sex and say, yes, I believe that you hear the call to flee from sexual sin and you say, yeah, Cole, I, I want to do that. But if it was just that easy, don't you think I would have? If it was just as easy as fleeing from it, whatever that might mean, don't you think I would have done that by now? Don't you think I hate dealing with this? Don't you hate, think I hate the way I feel after I gratify these desires or after I cross those boundaries in a relationship? If you're like me, you know that fleeing isn't easy. And you're saying, yeah, I, I get it, Cole, but you just don't understand. I, I want to walk in this purity. I want to walk in holiness, but I, I just can't seem to. And in this, I think that, that we are a lot like rats who love to eat Cheese. Yet for many of us, the only cheese available is the cheese that is the bait to the trap in the middle of the kitchen floor. And and see, if you know anything about rats, you know that they can smell cheese from a long way away and that they desire it. And so they'll go through walls and under floorboards and sneak under doorways to get in the room where the cheese is. Yet imagine the the rat getting into that room and seeing the cheese and knowing if I eat that cheese, it's going to break my leg. That that trap is going to snap and it's going to hurt. Yet all too often the rat goes for the cheese. Limping away from the kitchen with a full belly but a broken leg. And so what that rat needs to do is not to do everything he can to get in the room where the cheese is and then think that he's going to be able to resist it. What the rat needs to do is find another house to live in. He needs to run as far away from the kitchen as he can. Similarly, we are called to flee from our sin. What I think is really interesting in this text is that sexual sin is described as somehow different than other sin. Paul says that it's a sin against one's own body. And part of what Paul means in that we've already discussed and that, that we're deeply united to other people's bodies in a way that it basically makes a marriage commitment. And that's part of what Paul has in mind, but I think there's something deeper. I'm convinced that really God has a much higher view of our bodies than we do. See, we often think of our body as simply a physical tool through which we get to express our true sense of self, which is much more nebulous than our body. But in God's view, the body is deeply important. And we're connected to our bodies in very powerful and inseparable ways. See, we can know that God has a high view of the body because God formed the first human body by picking up dirt with his hands and molding Adam. And then he used his hands to open Adam up and remove his rib and then use that to fashion Eve. The psalmist writes that, that in the wombs of our mother, God knits us together intimately and purposefully. See, our bodies are not only the creation of God, but they are the unique and intimate and personal expression of God's image in the world. God made us with bodies to use our bodies for His glory. But we have a problem. We've defiled our bodies. We've sinned against our bodies with any number of things, but particularly sexual immorality. See, our bodies that were the intimate and purposeful and and unique expression of God's character in the world are now dirty and shameful, having having participated in any number of unspeakable acts. We don't only have a low view of sex compared to God, we have a low view of our bodies. But God loves and values the body. He he does so, so much that he looked upon our dirty, sinful bodies that were destined for death and suffering, marked by shame and guilt, and decided to enter into one himself. See, in the person of Jesus, we see God treasuring and honoring himself with the human body. Though we have sinned against our bodies, Jesus honored the Father through purity. Though our bodies are destined for death, Jesus took death upon His own body that we might be saved from it. Though our bodies are weak and sickly and dying, Jesus' body right now is glorified and heavenly as He reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all creation at the right hand of the Father in a human body. And this is why if we were to go back to verse 11, the language would be so powerful when Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or consider verses 19 and 20 when Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Church, Jesus wore a body to the point of death so that we can have new bodies. And we often think of this in future terms as Christians. We think about getting a glorified and heavenly body in the second coming of our Lord, but we can think of it in present terms. The language of being washed in verse 11 should remind us of our baptism. When we put on the death and resurrection of Christ, not only spiritually and not only mentally, but in our bodies as they were washed physically with water, being cleansed from the sinfulness of our past, present, and future. So in our baptism, we appeal to the bodily death and resurrection of Christ so that we might have and walk in redeemed bodies, minds, and souls today. Every week, we celebrate the body when we come to the communion table. We cling to and are united to Christ's body and His blood to nourish and strengthen and secure us in the grace of God, not only spiritually, but physically also. So Christian, though you may have defiled your body through any sort of sexual misconduct, what God did is He looked upon your body of sin, your heart of darkness, and decided He would buy it and make it His home. Your body is no longer a room with the blinds drawn. Your body is no longer sinful and shameful, but it is now, if you are in Christ, a brilliant and magnificent temple of God meant to emanate the glory and grace of God. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price, Christian. God didn't begrudgingly take you, but He sacrificially purchased you. He desired to have you for Himself even though he knew well your sin and your shame, you were bought with a price Is the ultimate gospel call. Because it reminds us that, that in the midst of feeling guilty and dirty and shameful and confused, that, that in that time God looked upon you and he said, I want that one. I want that one. I will die to have that one. I'll go to whatever cost it takes that I might have them and make them new and make them my son or make them my daughter and I'll cherish them and I'll sustain them and I'll strengthen them and I'll secure them and I'll look upon them and call them beloved. You were bought. You weren't only bought with a price but the text tells us that our bodies are now temples for the Holy Spirit of God. And what does that mean? What does it mean? It's probably language that you've heard used throughout your life if you grew up in the church. Your body being a temple was probably something that you were told in order to convince you to eat your vegetables or exercise. But what does it actually mean that our bodies are the temple of God? To understand it, we would have to go back before the time of Jesus to the history of the nation of Israel and see that in the physical temple in Jerusalem, God dwelt there. And this is where the people of Israel would come to offer sacrifice and to offer prayers and to worship. The temple of God was where God's presence dwelt and His people participated in the things of God. And so our bodies being a temple of God means that now it is in and through our bodies that temple worship happens, which is making sacrifice making offerings of prayer and worship but it's also the place where god's presence dwells see see the temp- our bodies being a temple of god is not just this sort of philosophical understanding of what it means to be the church, but it's a physical reality that if you are a Christian within your flesh and your bones, the Spirit of God, the fullness of His character and presence and holiness dwells within you. In your physical body, God has taken up residence that you might use your body to worship Him and to offer yourself to Him and that He might glorify Himself through you. So Paul tells us that our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but they're meant for glorifying God. And we glorify Him through understanding that our bodies are truly temples of God where He lives and dwells and moves. When Paul tells us that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, he he really means that in your physical bodies, God dwells and that they've been redeemed from sin and are now meant to To pour out the love and grace and majesty and character and holiness of God. Our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality. They are meant for temple worship. And only through using our bodies for temple worship. For honoring God. Through offering ourselves in sacrifice. Through worshiping and through prayer. Only through these things will we have any success in fleeing from our sexual desires. It's only when we realize that we're weak and frail but that God is powerful and that He has purchased us and indwelled our bodies that we might be an outpost of His kingdom. It's only then that we will be able to walk in freedom from our desires. So what does it mean to flee from sin? What does it mean? It means that we must walk in radical openness and honesty about our temptations and failures in the area of sexual sin. It means that we have to understand that that walking in the light is the only way to have freedom and that things that are left in secret, things that are left in the dark will continue to own us but But by the grace of God and by the fact that he dwells within us, now we can be honest. Now we can be confident. Why? Because God has purchased us and we have nothing to be ashamed of. So we can share with our friends and with our family, with our parish family, the things that we're dealing with. Fleeing from sexual sin means that we have to eliminate the easy access we have to the things that we've historically been weak against. The rat will not do well for long in a kitchen where there's cheese on a trap. Get rid of it. Get out of that room and get rid of the cheese. So if your phone or computer is the way through which you access sexual content, download software that will prevent you from accessing it. Or just get rid of your phone and computer. It's not worth it. If it's a relationship that is continually tempting you to cross these boundaries and to make commitments that you're not ready to make, that's causing you guilt and shame and destruction, that's causing you to feel the weight of your sin every time you come to the table, end that relationship. Out of love for God, out of love for yourself, out of love for others, walk away from it. If you're sitting in the room and you're thinking, yeah, this is not just that easy for me. See, I have an addiction. I've got a real problem. I've been battling this for years. It's a daily thing. It's something that I can't seem to escape. Seek counseling. Visit the Christian Recovery Group here at Sojourn Montrose. Find a place where you can speak freely and openly and begin to apply the gospel slowly over time that you might flee and experience freedom. We know that every time we eat that cheese, the trap is going to snap our leg and it will continue to damage us. It will continue to be painful. So we have to stay out of those places. We have to go to great lengths to offer ourselves as sacrifices to God. Fleeing sexual sin is not just a one-way thing where we flee from our sin, but we have to flee toward something and what we have to flee toward is the gospel. We have to believe that God's plan for sexuality is better than our own. We have to trust that the infinitely wise and loving God of all things designed sex to operate the way it does for our good and for our joy. We have to believe that obedience will produce a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And remember that in our sin we only experience guilt and shame and self-pity. Personally, as someone who has dealt with these things for years, I find it very helpful to remember the Beatitudes from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. When faced with temptation, I seek to remember that I am weak and desperate for God's help. And in those moments, I find myself to be poor in spirit. And even more so, I find myself to be poor in spirit in the moments that I don't resist temptation. Yet I remember the words of Jesus, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This isn't about willpower. It's not about personal determination. You're not just going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and decide that you're not going to desire those things anymore. It's about God's power and personal desperation. It's about... Being the desperate who seek after righteousness, knowing that it is to the desperate that God will give his kingdom. When I'm tempted or troubled by the sins from my past, or when I'm mourning the sin of the present, I'm often reminded that ultimately I'm troubled and fighting and trying to flee because my ultimate desire, my ultimate want is that I will walk in righteousness. And there's a great comfort in that because Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It isn't about being perfect and it's not about after today I'm never going to fail again or my old mindsets are gone for good. It's about a genuine desire to see God's power work in your life to make you more like his son day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Sanctification takes time. But those who are hungry for it will be satisfied. And finally church, I have hope for the future as someone who's struggled with this, and as someone who has seen that month after month and year after year, my heart and mind and body are growing in purity. I remember that Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, some of you stumbled into this room in a haze from maybe what you participated in this morning or last night or in the past years. And, and, and there's this haze that covers you where you just you believe with your mind the gospel, but you just can't see these things at work. You have trouble seeing and believing and tasting the glory of God, but the pure in heart see God. And so over time, as God purifies you, as He sanctifies you, as He continually washes you, what's going to happen is that you will see Him more and more clearly, that you'll gaze upon His beauty more and more clearly. And as you see Him more clearly, as you gaze upon Him more clearly, what you'll be is more infatuated with Him. As your eyes are more and more open to the beauty of God, your desires for God will grow. And so the question is not, will will you commit this morning to abstinence and purity and the hard work of doing better? The question this morning is, will you surrender your weak and wandering heart over to a loving and gracious Savior? Will you believe that in the death and destruction of Christ's body, that your body can and has been redeemed? Will you trust that in the power of God reigning in your physical body that that will be able to lead you into deeper worship and holiness for joy and for His glory? This isn't a a one-time thing. Many of us will be excited about what God is doing in our hearts this morning and next week or next month or later this year we'll find ourselves wandering back to old habits and old thought processes. But it's in that moment that you can remember I am not defined by these things. I was washed. I was sanctified and I was justified in the power And the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit dwells within me so that now my body has been redeemed for His glory and I can turn from sin and walk in righteousness. Not by your power, but by His. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you, many of us desperate. And we ask that the power of your gospel would be applied to our hearts and our bodies in a way that we would be transformed. I pray that you would make Sojourn Montrose a church that walks in purity and holiness for your glory, for our joy, that we celebrate those things, but also a church that walks in openness and honesty, quick to apply and preach the gospel to a brother or sister confessing their sin. Make us a pure church, Lord. Let us come to your table with confidence, knowing that the body and blood of Christ are not for the pure, but they are for sinners that we might be made pure. So let us boast in our weakness because it is in that that your strength is made clear. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.